Good morning, Cornerstone. As you remain standing, I just again want to repeat, uh, welcome to all of our first-time guests or those who don't find yourself in this church or any other church often. We're so glad that you're here. We hope that you feel a sense of family. Um, as you turn to Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to start and read starting in verse 38 to the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 5, 38 to the end of the chapter. It'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you or you haven't made it there yet. Starting in verse 38, it says this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. He really did mean that. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you today, uh, and we acknowledge first and foremost that you are our King. And that is such a good thing, Father. Uh, but sometimes it's a troubling thing to our heart and souls because as our king, there's sometimes where we love the promises that you give us, the good things that you say that you'll do for us, but we shrink back when we hear the commands that just don't make sense to us, Father. Uh, would you remind us that everything that you say is good? Uh, would you help us to come to this text and come to your word today um, as those that don't doubt your goodness or even have a suspicion of it. Help us to be those that completely trust you, hear you. Give us the strength, the courage, and conviction to obey. And as we obey, uh, we pray that you would change us, Father. We pray that you would change us before we obey so that we can obey. We ask that you would do all this and so much more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can take your seats now. Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. Christianity has often been found difficult and left untried. G.K. Chesterton wrote, it's not like people really try to do what Christianity has called them to do, and when they do it, they say, I'm done with this, it really hasn't worked out. What he says is that so often people kind of come to texts like this and say, I ain't even going to try that. That's not me. 
One of the things that Christianity does is it rubs against our sensibilities, things that are ingrained in us that you and I see as normal and right and true. One of the most basic things that we feel is normal and right and true is repayment. Repayment is normal. There's nothing more basic. It's intuitive. It's expected by both the giver and the recipient. So much so that if you're getting ready to give somebody a gift, and you want it to be seen as a gift that they don't have to repay you, you buy them lunch and say, hey, it's on me. You don't have to worry about paying me back. Because unless you make it explicit that it's a gift, people are going to feel ingrained to say, well, thank you. I've got you next time. Repayment is ingrained in us. But that principle extends from the positive to the negative. Right? So it's one thing to give somebody a gift and say, don't worry about it. You don't have to pay me back. But when somebody gives you a grievance, what you say is, don't worry, I'm going to pay you back. <laughs> so while I was on sabbatical on my birthday, uh, while all my real friends that loved me posted nice pictures of me on Instagram, uh, Keith, one of our pastoral interns, is sitting right here in the front row in the White shirt, I want you to know him so that you can see him and direct your hate, hate, hatred towards him. Um, he posts a picture of me sleeping on a plane or something like that. And so what I told him was, don't worry, I'm going to get you back. And uh, now there's an Instagram account called Keith Sleeps in Cars, where <laughs> you can go and look exclusively at pictures of Keith sleeping um, in cars. Uh, Richard took it upon himself while I was gone right, uh, to share an embarrassing story about uh, me. And I said, Richard, that is fine. You are up here preaching less than 10 times. I'm up here more than 30 times <laughs> each year. So I'm strategically plotting how I'm going to get him back, right? What's that inside of us? Is that just a principle of repayment that is normal? Or is it a passion for revenge? That line is so thin, and it's often blurred. Here's the thing that we see about repayment. When it comes to generosity, when folks give things back to us, we repay them in equity. It's like the moving walkways at, at the airport, right? They're all on one plane. They go the same speed back and forth. But when it comes to grievances... We don't repay in equity. We escalate them. We don't just want to get them back, but we want to get them back in such a way that they know they shouldn't come back. So what you'll find is accidental insults turn into intentional hurtful remarks. Hurtful remarks turn into fist fights. Fist fights turn into gunfights. Gunfights turn into funerals. If not physically, then metaphorically. You find anyone that's willing to end a relationship, either by their words or walking away from the relationship, and do you know what you'll find behind that? A reason. 
repayment, something that they did that has earned the end of the relationship. And this thin line that's often blurred in between repayment and revenge. You and I know how it threatens to tear friendships, marriages, nations, a whole world apart. And I would ask you, if you were God and you saw the relationships of the people that you created, the fabric of this community tearing apart at the seams because of this unchecked passion for revenge, what would you do? If you were God, I think that you would intervene. History is replete with examples of feuds and prejudices and wars. And so what God has done because he loves us and he cares for us, is he's provided us with his word. Now, your Bible, as we've talked about time and time again, is not a rule book, although there are lots of rules in it. But it's important not just to know the rules that God gives, the laws that he gives, but the context in which he gives it. So you go to the Old Testament, and what you see is this. Look, God sees people suffering. God saves a nation, and then... He gives them a law. He loves them. He saves them. And then he gives them a law. The law does not come on this side of salvation. It is not, I obey so that God will love me and save me. It is, God has loved me and saved me. And because of that, I'll obey. Because I know all his words are good, even the tough ones here. And we're getting ready to get to, uh, I think, the passage that is one of the most defining about what Christianity is. And it is the thing that kind of sets this dividing line apart between Christianity and the sensibilities of the world that we live in today. So I'm just going to start with my main point, and then I'm going to give us three small ones along the way. And the main point um, is this. God's children, those that have been saved by God and changed and transformed by God, what we do is we give our best to people that deserve the worst. God's children give their best to people that deserve the absolute worst. Here's the first thing that he says. And it's common, or, or it rubs against what we think, but Christians are not the only one to say it. The first point, the first thing that we see here um, is that we don't give evil for evil. We don't repay evil for evil. 38, it says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow you. Uh, Porcupines are not predators. 
right? So a porcupine's not a bully. He's not going to go and rob anybody else of their lunch money. But what you'll find is that porcupines are defensive. So you aren't going to slap a porcupine on the right cheek without walking away more bruised than you came. What he's starting off and saying here is that, listen, Christians aren't porcupines. So what he does throughout the rest of this text is he starts off with these words. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, what he's trying to bring up in this is this. He's talking to a group of people that would consider themselves religious, the type of folks that would find themselves in a church on Sunday morning. And he's saying, um, you have a conception about what religiosity, what Christianity, what a religion that pleases God is. And you've been told by people who think of themselves as experts, you've you've been told by people that you trust how to live. And what he's saying is, um, I kind of want to shatter the paradigm that you have. So the very first thing that he does is he quotes from the Old Testament and he brings up this law saying, you have heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Then he'll use this word but. Right? But can be two things. But can mean a contrast or it can mean a contradiction. You've heard it, but that's wrong. Do this. Jesus is not contradicting what God's saying. This is not him saying the Old Testament was a wrathful God that was barbaric and vengeful, but now I'm going to come on the scene and I'm this God of love, right? Jesus is not contradicting what God has said. He's, he's contrasting how they understood it. Here's what took place. The law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, listen, was not meant to encourage vengeance. It was meant to discourage the escalation that comes from vengeance. Right? So it's like, you you knocked out my eye, I'm going to kill you. Right? What God says is, all right, no, 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 no. Things are messed up. So in order to limit, especially in this day where the rich and the powerful had the freedom to oppress those that were poor and to get away with it, What Jesus, or or what God does is he says, hey, I want to protect the vulnerable, so here's what I'm going to do. In order to make sure that things don't get out of control and fistfights turn into funerals, I'm going to put this law in place. And listen, it was a law that was put in place. So if you had a qualm like this with an injury that took place, what you didn't do was take the law into your own hand. You would have to take it to somebody else, an impartial third party that is not going to execute justice with their fists closed because they have hearts full of vengeance. So in order to keep that line clear, Jesus brings this out. But the Pharisees at the time used this to encourage vengeance as if it was my right to pay you back. And Jesus says, I know that you've heard that, but there's a better way. And then what he does is he gives these four examples, and that's what they are. Listen, examples. They are not laws. He's not replacing one law with four different laws so that you would look and say, all right, 
well, they actually slapped me on the left cheek, so this law doesn't uh, uh, apply. Principles. Here's the principle that he's trying to give. Uh, We don't spend our time trying to defend our own honor. All right. Back in these days, uh, it's important for us to see that he says, look, if somebody slaps you, right, not just on the cheek, but on the right cheek, why does he bring that out, right? I'm left-handed, so if I were to slap you, not that I would, but if I were, it would hit you on the right cheek. Most people back in these days were not left-handed. So in order to hit you on the right cheek, do you know what they had to do? Give you a backhand. Which is, look, it's not primarily meant to inflict injury. It's more of an insult. So it's like we would use, like, if somebody were, were to mush you, right? Uh, for those of y'all that don't know what a mush is, uh, Urban Dictionary has a great definition for you. I'll read it and explain. It's uh, the act of placing one's hand on another person's face and pushing the person backwards, right? So a mush is kind of like a backhand slap. I'm I'm not trying to poke your eye out. I'm just trying to shame you and push you back. And so what Christ is saying here is if somebody were to mush you, stand back up and let them do it again. Right. Right. He said, look, there's something more important than your honor. Then he's going to go on and say, if somebody were to sue you and to take you to court, and it's important to have this in context, he says, this is an evildoer. So it's somebody with ill intent. So if they're to sue you and to take you to court, give them your coat as well. Uh, Again, the, the context is lost on us. Back on this day, you could sue somebody for their stuff, but what you could not take was their outer garment. Their outer garment was something that was protected because if they were poor, that was all that they had to keep them warm at night. And so what he's saying, yo, somebody's going to wrongly try to commandeer your property. Give him a little more. He's going to go on and say, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Back in these days, Roman officers, right, could abuse their power. You could be eating at home with your family and they could come and knock on your door and say, hey, I've got work to do and I need help, so I need you to come and walk with me a mile. There's an abuse of power that I have and it's going to inconvenience you. And Christ says that when your dignity is attacked in that way as well, go with them too. Give him a little extra. It's debated on what that last one means. If somebody asks of something from you, don't withhold. I don't think that it means if you go to the gas station and somebody says, hey, can I have the keys to your car that is a Christian, you have to do that. I think if it's in context of an evil do-do, where it kind of means uh, you ask somebody for something and they say no. And then they come to you and they ask you for your help. What do you say? Do you refuse them? 
or do you give it to them? All of these are examples about a different way of living. And he's saying, if you have the opportunity and even the right for retribution, it doesn't mean that you have to take it. Caveat, just a quick thing because this verse has been so misinterpreted. One thing that Christ does here is he brings up examples, hear this, of insults, not injuries. So an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that was specifically something that was an injury. So if a slave got his eye poked out, he could go free. Jesus doesn't bring up things that are injuries, but insults. I think because he's trying to drive this point home, that we don't fight to protect our honor. Right? If this is taken to the wrong extent, you get what looks like the same principle, but is a pacifism. Something that somebody like a Mahatmas Gandhi would have said. So he would say the same thing, don't repay evil for evil. But he would go so far as to write Britain when they were waging war against Nazi Germany, telling them to stop the violence. There's nothing loving in not protecting. I imagine if Jesus told the story of the good Samaritan and he came across the people that were actually doing the robbing, the application is not, all right, sit back and chill, wait until they're done, um, and then go and help. It would be loving to ward them off because you're protecting life. He's not calling us to be doormats. This is just meant to discourage revenge. And the person that would use this text to oppress others and try to keep them silent. So think of the man that would abuse his wife and would use this text and tell her to turn the other cheek. The person that would molest a child the slaveholder that would try to encourage his slaves to pacifism by trying to preach this text, that's not what this is for. It's not meant to weaponize this text to encourage injustice. It's meant for those of us that are oppressed, that are on the receiving end of evil, to be reminded that just because you are on the receiving end of evil, it doesn't mean that you are robbed of power. What Jesus is trying to advocate here is a different kind of power. He changes our understanding of it. You and I, we tend to think that being oppressed is to be powerless. But he's saying, no, no, no. There's a power of a different kind here. There's a power that comes from restraint. That proves this greater point. That in this restraint, what you and I do is we expose the emptiness that lies behind so much evil. That you say, you're going to use your power to try to rob me of dignity. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn the other cheek so that even when I give you what you want, you'll see that you don't have what I have. You want to take things from me. You want to abuse your power 
because you think that somehow it's going to make you feel better and that evil is going to lead you to a full life. And you'll see that even when I'm empty, when you've robbed me of all the things that you think will bring you joy, I am not the one empty. You are. There's a different kind of power that comes from restraint and we start to find out very quickly, listen, when it comes to repairing relationships and healing the world that we're in, revenge doesn't work. It doesn't restore. It doesn't heal. It doesn't even protect us from harm. Do you know what it does? It enrages the survivors. So even if you're Liam Neeson from Taken, and you want to get revenge, you find out that in order to make peace, if you're really going to take revenge, you've got to kill everybody. And then even after you do it in part one, it's going to take a trilogy for you to really bring it to completion. It doesn't work. It's this never-ending cycle. Think about the last time. Think about the last time that you responded to somebody with these vengeful, hateful words. That you gave them back what they gave you. Did it fix it? Was the relationship restored? I think at best you got temporary relief. You felt better for a time. But then as time goes on, maybe your conscience starts to convict you. And you think, I went too far. And now you have to go and apologize instead of accepting an apology. Or you find yourself quieting your conscience and saying, well, they deserved it, and I'm going to be mad, and I'm not going to forgive them. And your revenge just brought additional strain to the relationship. When we see the power that comes in restraint, what we see is we live as those who have something more than worldly honor to lose. There's a power that exists in restraint when we don't return evil for evil that shows the emptiness of it. And that's good and that's right and true, but there are more than just Christians that have advocated for don't repay evil for evil. It's a good concept that at its core is Christian, but this is, this is just the first step. This is just the first ingredient. Jesus is going to move on. And, and he's going to help us see, listen, how you react when wrong is done to you is really at its core a picture of who you reflect. Verse 43, once again, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy." But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, He he starts to change gears here. 
It's one thing to respond rightly when somebody does this one act towards you, when you have this snapshot of evil that's directed towards you. It's another thing to respond rightly when that one act turns into a whole play. When that screenshot turns into a movie and you have somebody who is not just this isolated drop of water, but there is this river of enmity and anger constantly headed in your direction. They hate you. They are an enemy. And I know there's a lot of us here in this room that are saved, saved, and we say, I don't have enemies. My battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the principalities. But then there are those of us that say, no, 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 no. There are really people uh, that I won't say that I hate, but if their house burnt down, I wouldn't be sad. If there's anybody where you would find yourself, your mood would rise if circumstances in their life fail, that's somebody that you have something in your heart against. And Jesus says, look, we don't want to return evil for evil. But then he goes a step further, right, on route to saying God gives, God's kids give their best to people that deserve their the worst, is you actually need to rise above just giving good for good. So what he's saying is this. Don't give evil for evil. But you've got to do something better than just doing good for good. Here's the problem with this text. He said, you've heard that it was said in the past, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That phrase is not in the Bible. The first half of the phrase is, love your neighbor. But there's something that the Pharisees both added and subtracted. Here's what they subtract. The Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. So there is a degree that he wants us to love them to, the same way that we would love ourselves. So they took that off, but here's what they added. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Right? Not love and hate in the emotional sense that we think, but love and hate as disposition, right? If love is to favor somebody, to seek their good, then hate doesn't have to be active. It can be neglect. I'm not going to give them what they need. And I hope that things come crumbling down for them. They narrowed God's command so much that they said, all right, so long as I don't do evil for evil, and I do good to the people that do me good, then I'm okay. And Jesus says, that's not the purpose of the law. That's not God's intent. In the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is going to broaden the definition of a neighbor, those that you love. Right? So there's this story, this guy says, oh, I know I have to love God and love my neighbor as myself. And then he asks Jesus, but who is my neighbor? And what Jesus does is he redefines this whole concept of neighbor. Neighbor is not those that are like you, those that you would greet, those that you would like. He takes a Jew and he places a Samaritan. The Samaritan was the oppressed party 
in that relationship. The Samaritan was the one that was looked down upon, treated down. And what the Samaritan does is he shows kindness to the person who would have showed him hatred. And Jesus says, no, no, listen, your neighbor is not defined by anybody's religious preferences, not by their dietary preferences, not by the color of their skin. Your neighbor is defined by anybody who is in proximity to you and has a need. So what he does is he eliminates this category altogether, the way that people would skirt this law. And then what he does is he does two things. He shows how God acts. Look, God sends rain and shine on the just and the unjust. Right? Look here as it talks about not just that God sends the sun, verse, 40, verse 45, uh, for he causes not just a son, but his son. Right? It's like, I love Oreos, and there's times where I buy them for me. And um, a few nights ago, Chandra got up, and she uh, came back into the room with a pack of said cookies. And I told her, sweetheart, it's fine. You can have some of my Oreos. I just wanted her to know that I'm being kind, and this is not ours to share. It's mine to share. This is what God's saying here. No, no, listen. God's saying, look, nobody has a right to be warmed by the sun that he made. And he doesn't just give sunshine to good Christians. Everybody gets his sun. He doesn't just send rain to good Christians, good people who are of a certain political bank. He sends it to all. So there's this aspect of this God who has these very good gifts. And do you know what he does with those good gifts? It's this thing that theologians call common grace. He indiscriminately pours out his love to everybody. And then he, and he says, that's something special. And then he's going to go so far in verse 46 and 47 and say this. Look, if you don't do bad to folks that have done bad to you, and you go so far as to just give good to folks that have done good to you, he's like, you haven't done anything special. Even Hitler had a longtime girlfriend that he eventually married. That's what he's trying to bring here. Like, everybody does good to, to people that do good to them. Because at the end of the day, if you do good to people that do good to you, that's not really this great love. It can be motivated by self-interest. I just want to be paid back for the things that I do so that I do good. And at the end of the day, the person is not your primary concern. What you get from them is your concern. And he says there's nothing special. But God's children give their best to people that deserve their absolute worst. Why? Here's what I want you to see. Verse 45, it's not for pragmatic reasons 
It's for paternal reasons. Here's what I mean by that. Verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Look, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Here's what I love about this text. Abraham Lincoln says this. The best way to get rid of an enemy is to turn him into a friend. There is power in this way of loving because it has the ability and the capacity to transform somebody that hates you into somebody that loves you. This text does not say obey because if you do, this will be the end result. What it's saying is no, no, no. Obey so that you will be or or so that you will prove that you're God's children, that you look like him, that you do what he does. That's what God does. Listen, if you try to obey this for pragmatic reasons, you'll lose steam very, very quickly. Because here's what takes place, especially in the world that we live in today. There's power in this, but there's not a promise that it'll change, folks. If you try to obey this for pragmatic reasons, what you'll find is betrayal. What you'll find is this. I find myself a part of a group of people that think the same as I do politically, racially, ethnically, religiously. They don't do bad for bad, but they only give good for good. So the second that in their hatred they start to attack somebody across the political spectrum, the second that they start to attack somebody across the religious spectrum, and I go to this side and say, no, hey, chill, and I try to give the benefit of the doubt, and I try to obey this, do you know what you'll find more often than not? It's not that you'll convert enemies into friends. You'll convert people that you thought were friends into enemies. That when you don't join in with the hatred of their party, people love their hates. And when you don't join in and cancel folks out and say all of this stuff, you're viewed as somebody on the other side. And people love those that love them. They feel it's okay to hate those that don't love them. But if you do it to display the glory of God, to prove that you are His child, to to do what God has done to you, do you know what you find out? That you don't lose sting. That you find, wait a minute, Jesus did this exact same thing. He loved those who didn't love Him. And do you know what He got? He didn't get a bunch of people rallying around the cross, grateful for what he did. Do you know what he got? The people that were friends of his turned and ran away from him. As we give our best to people that deserve the worst, you and I function as mirrors in this world. A mirror seems like I see myself as I am, and in some ways you do. 
But have you ever worn a T-shirt with writing on it and looked in the mirror? What you see is that what you give to the mirror, you get back its opposite. You don't get the writing forward, you get it backwards. That's why ambulances on the front, the words are written backwards, so that when you see it in the rear view, you read what it says. God has called you and I to do that in this world. That as people give us their worst, we are those that don't return it in kind. It's not a photo that we take and give back to them what they gave us. We're mirrors. We give them the opposite. Because that's what God has done for his creation in general. And he gives us a very practical way to do this. Look, pray for those that persecute you. Have you ever tried to do that? I woke up this week and as I'm reading and praying, I'm like, all right, God, I'm really going to do this. So I sit down. And I start to create a list. I think I'm a likable guy, but here are all the people that I think really hate me. That just don't like me for no reason. Um, And I don't think about them often. But do you know what took place as I started to write that list? Anger. Rage. Frustration. Why don't they like me? There's plenty of people that like me. I'm funny, I'm um, all of this, and I start to think of all the good things that I have, and then I get back on the list, and I start to write these things. And do you know what takes place? Hatred. And the first thing that I try to do is I try to excuse it away. And what you find is that hatred can hide out in apathy, or I just don't think about that. But when you're not passive in relationships and you're proactive and you list those people that hate you and you start to pray, right? Pray for them, not that God get them, but God, I pray that you would bless them. Do you know what takes place? You are forced to own that hatred. But then you yield that hatred to God. And as you continue to do that, what you find is that it's impossible for those two things to remain in the same heart. I can't pray for somebody's well-being and consistently want their downfall. One of those is going to crowd out the other. And this is the blessing of obedience. And as we do what God has called us to do, even when we don't feel like doing it, it's the obedience, not that earns us salvation, but it's that very thing that starts to change us from the inside out. Because we do it all in faith. Question. What does the world need? What does your world need? What does your marriage need? What do your friendships need? Do they need snapshots of what they've done to you so that you can pay them back and give them what they did and hope that they'll change? How many people have changed like that? How many relationships have been helped by that? Or do they need a reflection? It's opposite. This can make all the sense in the world. What I love about this text and God's word is that um, it's possible to be convinced of something's goodness and still not want it. 
I know vegetables are good for you. I know drinking more water than juice throughout the day is good for you. I'm convinced of it. But I don't want it. I I have to be changed from the inside out. And the question is, how do we change? How do we become these type of people that reflect God's character in the world? And it's simple. This is simple. Simple does not mean easy. It just means simple. We start to reflect God's goodness into the world by reflecting on his goodness to us. That's how we change. By looking at how Christ has acted, listen, not just in creation, so it's not just I'm going to leave out here and bask in a sunny day and say God loves me and that will change me. But we reflect on what he's done in redemption. So God looks down and sees that this world is broken and God sends his law first. And an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, to try to calm down the escalation. And then what takes place is humanity is so broken that even when God gives this law, they use the law not to get to God's intent, but to find a loophole to do what it is that they want to do. So what God does is he sends his son. And in this part of the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is proving this is true by his words. But the Gospel of Matthew doesn't stop there. He proves that it's true not just by his words, but by his works. Do you remember at the start how how I talked about Christ brings this up, turn the other cheek, being slapped. But how the main point was not about injuries that are done to us, but how we respond to insults. Jesus the one who lived a perfect life and did good to all, who never earned evil from anyone, finds himself at the end of his life, blindfolded and slapped repeatedly. And he turns the other cheek. Jesus doesn't get justly brought to a court of law and found guilty on the other end of the jury and have to give up his coat. Jesus' clothes are gambled away and ripped off of his flesh. You talk about walking a mile. Jesus was given a cross placed on his back. And he carried that cross. You talk about injustice. You talk about giving. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus hears about the death of his cousin. And he's like, I just need to get away and just think. And as he leaves from one side of the shore and gets there, he sees a crowd of 5,000 people that are hungry. And do you know what he does? He doesn't say, yo, I just found out that my cousin was unjustly killed. Give me a minute. He gives of himself and he feeds them all. And he spends his time on this earth giving and giving and giving. You talk about praying for persecutors. Jesus doesn't have to sit alone in his shed in his study thinking of a list of people that hate him. He's looking out and the people that are spitting on him, throwing spears in his sides, nails in his hand, he, he doesn't have to think about them. He sees them. He sees the hatred in their eyes. And as he's taking his last breath, do you know what he's doing? He's praying. 
Dr. Martin Luther King captures this the best where he says this. Look, he says the most important word that he sees here is then. Then, said Jesus, Father, forgive them. Then, when he was being plunged into the abyss of nagging agony. Then, when man had stooped to his worst. Then, when he was dying a most ignominious death. Then, when the wicked hands of the creature had dared to crucify the only begotten Son of the Creator. Then, said Jesus, Father, forgive them. And he comes into the world, hear this, to display the glory of the Father. And he tells us to obey this by faith. And do you know what he does? He obeys this all in faith. In his lifetime here on the earth, he did not see this kind of love convert enemies into friends. Do you know what he saw? All of his friends ran. And after speaking truths like these, he had a group of people that were trying to kill him. But he displayed God's righteousness perfectly, even when he would have been just in calling down a legion of angels to just get him off of the cross. He stayed there. And he didn't ignore injustice like Gandhi advocated for at times. Do you know what he did? He absorbed injustice. He took it all on himself completely because he knew that living for God's glory that when we do that we do not measure the effectiveness of obedience by what we see and experience in this lifetime. So it's not, God, I've done what you've called me to do, but my marriage is still this way. I've done what you called me to do, but my friendships are still this way. I've done what you've called me to do, and the injustices in our nation are still this way. Jesus died not having experienced the completion of what God had done. He received the sentence of death because he entrusted his soul to the divine editor that could change the punctuation mark at the end of that sentence. So death was not ended in a period, but God took his divine eraser, erased the period, put in a comma, and has created one of the most glorious run-on sentences ever. That enemies of God Bonafide enemies, people that don't believe what God has done, that don't do all the things that he advocated for here. We may not commit adultery, but we lust. We may not murder, but we hate. We may not lie, but we tell half-truths. And what Jesus shows in his death and resurrection on the cross is that even those that would set themselves up as enemies of God do not have to face God's justice, but they can experience his love as children because Jesus absorbed that justice. And he has turned enemies into friends. And we see something special. 
after he advocates for this. God's children are those who give their best to people that deserve their worst. Verse 48, as he sums up this whole thing, he says this, Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This perfect righteousness that he talks about is not just you not doing bad things. This perfect righteousness that he advocates for is is not just somebody that would not do bad things, but would do good things to people that have done very, very bad things. That Christian, hear this. You are not a goalie. Success in the Christian life is not just about you standing in front of a goal, warding off temptation. It's not about you just not sinning. It's about you being salt and light placed into a world that is vengeful and giving your best to people that deserve the worst. Because God's done that to you. And anybody that would reflect on His goodness, anybody that when met with an offense would really sit down and reflect on the great lengths that God has gone through to absorb injustices done against Him. As we close, I just want you to know this. If you live this way, people will think that you are absolutely crazy. It will not make sense. Hear this. It will not make sense the marriages that you may choose to stay in. It will not make sense the friendships that you choose to fight for. It will not make sense the enemies that you choose to reconcile with. Not only that, but you'll get new enemies. But do you know what you will have? Freedom. Lewis Smead says this. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that prisoner was you. God promises us freedom and more honor as being one of his kids than we could lose from anybody that would mush you in the face. We don't give evil for evil. We rise above giving good for good because we serve a God who gave his best to people who deserve the absolute worst. And this is the joy that we get to live in. He's empowered us to do the very thing as we reflect on his goodness towards us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for going above and beyond. Lord, we thank you for providing an open door so that even as we find ourselves as those who have been made saints, Father, but continue to do things that displease you, we don't have to run and hide because we can be reminded of the great lengths that you've gone to save enemies, Father. So as we do things that would functionally place us in that category, would you remind us of the way that you treat people in that category so that we would run to you and not away from you? 
We ask that you would do this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.